Now, as you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Well, every once in a while, I, I walk into a home, maybe, maybe um, much like you, and you kind of take note of some of the things that people do to decorate their homes. And, and a lot of how people decorate their homes really defines a lot of, about who they are. It says a lot about who they are. I, I love walking into homes and, and seeing, you know, the, the family code of conduct. You see those? Either maybe, maybe, you know, you're a really big fan of Pinterest, and so you've got those, you know, nice plank boards laid out and on there, or you've got some print, and on there you're describing what is meant to to characterize how you live life in your family in this place. Statements that reflect what you hope to be consistent behavior, consistent ways of thinking, consistent ways of living. You know, in this home, we laugh regularly. We forgive always. We extend grace. We enjoy one another. Um, Those statements are really important. They're great reminders, aren't they, of, of how We need to often fight against our flesh and what we need to fight for to really enjoy living this life together. Businesses do the same thing. They'll often come up with a a kind of a code of conduct or statements that define how they want business to be handled, how relationships need to operate. We've done this for our church staff. We got statements that we have put down on paper that we've derived from God's word that really sum up and define how we want to do life together, how we want to serve together, and how we believe this is going to be most effective for us, for the body of Christ, and to the glory of God. I wonder, though, if you've thought about statements that would define what a code of conduct should look like to live a consistent Christian life. A consistent Christian life. That that is, after all, what God calls us to. And again, I was reminded of that even just through the baptisms. You know, as it was said by a couple of them this morning, that this was the starting point. It was the entry point into the Christian life. But then God calls us to live an increasingly faithful Christian life. And the question is, is how can we do that well? What defines what a Christian life should look like? Are there some statements that we can make? that help us do this well. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter, 2 Timothy, and he writes to Timothy, and we're rounding the bend. We're really, we're in the final chapter. We're getting to the very end of the letter. Paul, the great Apostle Paul, has discipled Timothy, and he's encouraged Timothy. Timothy is now the pastor of a church in Ephesus, and he's facing a lot of pressure, a lot of opposition. He's a little bit scared and worried, perhaps, about what maybe his future ministry looks like as a pastor of this church. Paul has come alongside him. He's given a lot of instruction in this book. And now in these, these final kind of few verses here, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 4, it's almost as if Paul gathers up all of the information and then almost in summary fashion he says, now, I want you to take everything I've given you before and then I want you to take this final kind of summary statement and this is how I want you to define how you live this Christian life and specifically how you do ministry. By the way, those two things are inseparable in Paul's mind. The Christian life is a call to Christian ministry. Regardless of what that looks like, whether it be vocational or non-vocational, whether it be formal or informal, every Christian is called to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, listen to what Paul says to young Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. He says, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths." As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul pulls Timothy close, so to speak, and he wants Timothy to have a consistent life and ministry and following Jesus because he wants Timothy to get to the end of his ministry and having looked back, you can see not only has he been consistent, but he's been able because of that consistency to finish strong in the faith and strong in the charge that God has given him. 
My hope and prayer is that you and I, if we're in Christ this morning, realize that God calls us to the same thing. So I want to give you four statements to live by. Four statements to live by that will help to foster a consistent Christianity. The first one is this, out of verse 1, I am ultimately accountable to the Lord. I am ultimately accountable to the Lord. Just grab that statement and drive that into your heart. These guiding principles will keep you walking faithfully and consistently with Jesus Christ. If you embrace them, if you come back to them regularly, just remember this first and foremost, I am ultimately accountable to the Lord. That's exactly what Paul says to Timothy. He charges him. There is a formal solemnness to what Paul is saying here. This is as serious as it gets, and he wants to kind of stack up some different pictures and phrases to build the sense of seriousness for what exactly it is that Timothy has embraced as a follower of Christ and specifically as a minister of Jesus Christ. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. Paul's charge to Timothy can't start any more weighty or any more serious than this. He charges him in the presence of God. He reminds him that what he has committed himself to has been done in the very presence of God, that God has actually been a part of this process, and God is the one who ultimately is overseeing this process. He evokes the highest authority in the universe to provide the greatest sense of accountability in the universe. I was reminded of this, um, this past weekend, I officiated a wedding, and uh, I'm always struck when I get to, when I'm dealing especially with young couples and they're preparing for the wedding, I, I always highlight, and I, I sometimes I do this in the, the ceremony as well, I highlight the most important part of the ceremony, which is the vows. And sometimes people, people are inclined, maybe if they're writing their own vows, to sometimes take them a little bit more trivially and light than they maybe should. You know, they want to be a little bit more humorous. And I'm okay with humor. That's not, that's not the point. But, but there is, I always encourage there is a, a weightiness to the vow that you are taking place. And what I try to do is I try to express, listen, this is the commitment and the covenant that you are making with one another. And what makes this so serious and the language so important is that this is actually being done, listen, in the very presence of God. He is the one who is being evoked here. He is the one who is being invited to witness this. And that makes it so vastly important, so incredibly serious. When you do this in a special sense, you are doing it in the presence of God. You know, that's why I, I'm, I'm a real big fan of wedding ceremonies. The ceremonies for the weddings, as much as sometimes they can be painful to those attending, they are not trivial, they are vital. They reinforce the solemnity of the occasion, the seriousness of the obligation of those who are participating, and the duties that they are obligating themselves to fulfill to one another and to God, right? This is why in a wedding ceremony, we talk about you as the participants witnessing alongside God what is taking place. There is a heightened sense of accountability in the process. By the way, this is God's design. Um, in the wedding ceremony, not to get off topic, but God's, or wedding ceremonies, by the way, were God's idea. He was the one who officiated the first wedding. He gave away the first bride, right? He solemnized the first marriage covenant. He was present, and that is what heightened the seriousness of the occasion. Just so, here with Timothy, Paul is evoking the name of God, and this charge in the presence of God elevates the accountability Notice as well, it's not just in the presence of God. He adds on, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. So not only is this charge given in the presence of God himself, it's actually given in the presence of Jesus, but I want you to see that Paul actually makes a shift here. He moves from the present sense of God being there in the moment to the future sense of final and ultimate accountability before Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the appointed judge of the universe, there is a day coming where he will judge, as it says here, the living and the dead. There is no one, in other words, who will escape the judgment of Jesus Christ. Everybody, past, present, and future, will one day be raised back to life and stand in the very presence of the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, and they will give a full account of the life they lived, and most specifically, the one whom they lived it for. So you can see what Paul is doing here. If the present accountability doesn't 
keep you motivated in one sense, Timothy. If that's not enough, let me give you some future accountability that hopefully will function as a safeguard in the midst of difficulties. Remember, that's what Timothy's experiencing. That's why this is so necessary for Paul to do. Paul says, Timothy, I know it's hard, but you need to understand who you're ultimately accountable to. I think this, the sense of this dual accountability is helpful for us to consider. This present and future is intended to incentivize us and to motivate us. And, and again, there's a parallel in this. The parallel that I see just on a human level is being sworn in to testify in court. You've seen that, right? Where, where they get you into the court system. Maybe you've gone through this. Maybe you haven't, but you've certainly seen it in movies where they make you put your hand on a Bible. You ever think about why they do that? Place your hand here. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Think about these words. So help me God. I do. You know what the point of that is? In the present moment, that is supposed to incentivize you to realize that ultimately, even though in a secular world, listen, they still do this, ultimately there is a greater accountability that you are called to do the right thing because of who you are ultimately accountable to. It brings a sort of fear into the picture, a healthy fear that says, I, I got to do what's right here, regardless of the cost. I got to do what I need to do. I got to do what, what honors God ultimately. And then, by the way, that's the, the present accountability. The, the, the secondary future accountability is if you choose to violate that and to not tell the truth, well, as an incentive, it's jail, right? Where you given hey, perjury, if you perjure yourself, ultimately you're saying, look, I'll, I'll bypass the presence. Who cares about uh, being in the presence of God? Well, okay, if you don't like that, then if you don't do what you say you're going to do, then you're going to go to jail. It's a good incentive. There's a judgment that can come later. This is just really helpful for us to embrace and understand that no one escapes it. We're all held accountable for what we did, why we did it, and again, let me say it again, who we did it for. Every one of us will stand before God, and really what we should hope for is this, that we had righteous behavior with righteous motives for the righteous one. I love the testimonies that we heard today. A great reminder, listen, that none of us will ever do this perfectly. None of us can. That's actually why Jesus had to come. The righteous one had to come and save us from our unrighteousness. But the hope is, is that with him now in us and living through us, we can begin to live lives that are increasingly more honoring to God. He presses this future sense home by appealing also, notice this, to his appearing and kingdom. So there's a day coming when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And that, by the way, is kind of encapsulated and, and falls in line in conjunction chronologically with the, his appearing and his kingdom. When Jesus returns, he is returning to this earth and he's returning to establish his kingdom where he will rule and reign forever. You know, Jesus takes this same idea and he packages it in parable form throughout the Gospels. Oftentimes, he'll, he'll tell a parable, a story to drive an important spiritual truth home. And he does this on a few different occasions, Matthew 25, Luke chapter 19. He, he tells this parable of the ten minas. And listen to what he says. Just listen, just a few verses here. He says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So here's these individuals that Jesus has been speaking to. They think that Jesus is the king. He rightly is. But they think his kingdom is going to be established immediately as he enters into Jerusalem and he establishes a socio-political kingdom here and now on the earth. They've got it wrong. That's not yet. That's a future reality. And in verse 12, he said, Therefore, a nobleman, here's the story, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. Listen to this accountability. To be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. It's a powerful picture that God calls us into his family and into the present nature of his kingdom. But there is a future day coming where the king will return and every one of us will give an account. Look, at, let this 
ultimate accountability produce a greater consistency in your Christian life. Live in light of the charge that God has given you as a follower of Christ to live not for your glory but for His. Live in light of the future day where you will stand before Him, your Lord and Savior, and give an account. Let this produce greater consistency in your Christian responsibilities, which leads us, by the way, to our second statement to live by, which is this, I am fully responsible for what I do with God's word. I am fully responsible for what I do with the word. Paul goes on after giving this solemn, serious charge to get to the content of this charge, and really, it's defined by the very first three words. That's the most important imperative in this passage. Everything else that he's about to say in this verse really unfolds this, and here it is. Here is the solemn charge that I give to you, Timothy. Listen, Christian, Christian, here is the charge that God gives to every one of us. Preach the word. Preach the word. This whole section is chocked full of imperatives, charges, do this, do this, do this. And they come in rapid succession. It's almost as if they have the the crisp forcefulness of a military order. He comes out almost with a machine gun and he just kind of blasts across and he says, here's what this is for you, Timothy. Here's what you're called to. But above all of the other imperatives, that you're called to. Here is the one that you must embrace. This is your greatest responsibility. It's what you do with the word of God. And your first responsibility is to preach the word, Timothy. The word here is the authoritative truth from God. It is primarily the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of salvation for all of humanity that God has designed and implemented and has executed a way for humanity, sinful humanity, to be brought back into perfect relationship with the creator of the universe. We can find in and through Jesus the purpose for which we were created to live the life we were meant to live and enjoy the blessings we were meant to have. The word of God is the gospel. It is also the sound doctrine. All of the teachings of God, all of the teachings of who he is, it is all of the scriptures, the whole counsel of God. And this is why this church, and one of our pillars, is that we, are unapo- we have unapologetic preaching. We are proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. We believe it is his word, and so it's imperative that that's exactly what we proclaim We are not called, listen, to be purveyors or preachers of personal opinions. We're not called to preach our own theories. We're not called to preach human wisdom or philosophy or psychology. We are called to preach the Word of God because it is in the Word of God and the Word of God alone that people can find life and hope and salvation. Amen? There is nothing more important that we can say than what God has already said. Now, it's really important for all of us to understand that this isn't to be understood primarily as the formal act of preaching, as in what I'm doing right now, formally preaching in front of the church family. In fact, the word for preaching here is better translated as proclaim, simply proclaim, be a proclaimer, or the analogy that's often used with this word is that of a herald. And in the ancient world especially, they would have had a very vivid concept of what a herald was and what he was called to do. A herald came with the authority of another far more powerful and influential than him, and he came simply as a mouthpiece to proclaim and announce on behalf of the one who had sent him. He comes with a delegated authority, he comes with a message not his own, and he comes, listen, expecting to have to give an account for what he has said. In other words, he's not allowed to change, to distort, to alter, or to falsify the message of the king. He comes to declare exactly what the king has called him to proclaim. It is our job to speak, church, listen, it is our job to speak on behalf of the king of kings. And we are called to do so faithfully. And we are fully responsible for what we do with God's word. We're we're responsible first, listen, for how we handle God's word. How it is that we unpack it and speak it and communicate it, the content of what we communicate, we're responsible to God for that. Here, 
Paul is going to give a whole bunch of other commands, but they're all falling under this umbrella of proclaim or preach the word, and, and really they define uh, Paul's understanding, influenced by the Holy Spirit, what that is supposed to look like in the Christian life. So uh, I want to put this together in a sentence so we have a, a really good picture of what this looks like. Just notice first what it says here. He says, preach the word, be ready. That's the first imperative. Be ready in season and out of season. And here's how I want you to think of this. If the, the main charge is to be a proclaimer, here's what, what this is telling us. It's telling us um, that we need to proclaim first with conviction. To be ready signifies a preparation, a readiness, but it signifies also an earnestness in all of this. Listen, all of this is undergirded by a deep conviction that what we say is the truth. What we say is the only hope for humanity. What we say is what is needed whenever it is said. And that's why he says, be ready in season and out of season. Or we all know what it's like. You can feel the changes of the seasons right now, can't you? It's sad. I mean, I like the crispness of the morning, but I was telling someone this morning, but it's, it's just an indicator of what's right around the corner, right? And they're all going to be like, man, I wish it was stinking hot out here again. But that picture of changing seasons, I think, is a, it's a powerful image of the changing seasons that the world, culture, goes through in relationship to the truth of God's Word. You know, even if you just think of, of four seasons that, that we, we enjoy in this part of the world, I just think there are, there are seasons, listen, where the Word of God is, is welcomed, it's embraced, it's enjoyed, and, and then there are seasons where it's kind of just tolerated and put up with. There are seasons when it is hated and despised all over the world right now in different places of the world. The word of God is despised and people are losing their life for believing it and for proclaiming it. And then there are seasons when it begins to kind of become considered again, thought about again, looked at with more intentionality. And this call for us to proclaim with conviction is a reminder that we are called, listen, to proclaim whatever the season is. There is no wrong season for proclaiming the word of God. And so we proclaim it whether it is popular or not, whether it is embraced or not, whether there are consequences or not, whether people respond or not. We are always prepared and always willing to proclaim the truth of the gospel and if I could just encourage you, listen, if you're one of those people who love to kind of sit back and, and wait for the right season, can I just encourage you, if you only wait until the conditions are favorable, you will likely never find it and likely never be willing to share it when it actually arrives. We must not be driven by fear and trepidation, but by trust and conviction. And so Paul says, proclaim essentially with conviction and then he adds this word, reprove. You notice that? Here's how you do this. You first reprove, and here's how I want you to think about that. We proclaim with conviction, aiming at correction. That's essentially what it means to reprove. The focus is on correcting somebody's thinking, ultimately that will lead to the correcting of their behavior. It is first focused on the head and desiring to lead to the heart. To reprove is to, in the biblical sense, expose sin, to bring it to light. It is also to refute error, to take somebody's way of thinking and to, to line it up with the truth of God's word and to let the word of God begin to correct the way we see life and the way we see ourselves and the way we see him. It's vital that we carefully teach people, listen church, we need to teach people about the sinfulness of sin. We need to remind them that it is sin that has separated us from God. We need to be reminded that we live in a sin-cursed world and people need to understand all of the implications for that uh, in terms of their own character, their own personality, their own actions and behaviors, and their own, their own consequences that they will one day face. They need to know what it is, what it's done, and where it's leading. And moving from correction, moving from reproving, he says that we are called to take the word of God and rebuke. 
This is a, a harsher sounding word for sure, and here's how I want you to think of this. We proclaim with conviction, aiming at correction, that forces a confrontation. This is the goal. If you just think about this, when we present the truth, we proclaim it as the truth. That's the conviction. And then our desire is to correct the way they're thinking, but the hope is to move somebody to a confrontation with God's word, not with us. We're not the ones we want the confrontation to happen with directly. We want to confront them with the word of God. You know, oftentimes I'll be in a conversation with somebody and I'll be sharing God's word with them and they'll say something like, well, I just don't like that. And I'll be like, well, your problem's not with me, it's with God. Right, take it up with him. Because I, 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 I don't want to be the offense. I want God's word to be the thing that they have to bump up against, that they have to wrestle with. And, and here we see that this idea of rebuking is moving somebody from a, a place of understanding the sinfulness of sin. Listen, here's the helpful thought for you. To the place of the sinfulness of their own sinful heart. Yes, I get that sin is bad and sin is an affront and assault against God. Sin is ultimately rebellion against God's authority. And now I move to a place where I see, oh, I have that problem. I am a sinner and I am not in a good standing with God and, and I need to be. You see, that's the confrontation that we want to force when we proclaim God's word. We want to help somebody come face to face with their own sin. And, and we do that by helping them come face to face with the God they've sinned against. And then finally, he, he gives this word, exhort. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And exhortation is it's the same word that means to come alongside somebody, you know, to encourage or to help or to help along the path. And so here's, here's how we can kind of complete this sentence. We proclaim with conviction, aiming at correction that forces a confrontation from a heart of compassion. And I love this final word. I, I love this because some of the first words, they feel abrasive when you first read them, but when you get to the end and you have to deal with the concept of, of exhorting, here's what you see. The call is to do this with a heart of love and heart of compassion and a desire to see that person made right with God and have a life that reflects God and His grace. It reminds us, listen, that there is a desperate need for tenderness and compassion for those who are faint-hearted and discouraged. You see, that's what happens when you come face-to-face -face with your sin, when you see what you've done to God and His glory through your, your actions, your behavior, and your attitudes, your thinking, your life. What happens is this, if you're truly broken by the grace of God, listen, you get to this place of shame and guilt and discouragement and sadness and God says that is right and good to get there, to get low, but listen, the grace of God comes alongside you and meets you there and says, now guess what? There is hope for the sinner. And while you are filled with shame and guilt because of what you have done, I came for you, and I came to restore you unto myself. I came to forgive all of your sins. I came to give you life, and I came to give you life to the fullest. It's a beautiful picture right here of how we take the word and how we handle God's word. But I want you to see this too. This also implies not just, listen, there is a responsibility for how we handle God's word, but for how we hear God's word. How we hear God's word. Because you have to put yourself on the other end of this equation here where there is somebody who is speaking God's word. There are always those who are hearing God's word. And so we need to be under God's word, understanding that the convictions of God word, God's word need to shape the convictions of our heart and life. That the correction, the reproof of God's word needs so often to correct and reprove me that the confrontation from God's word, I am so desperately in need of because I desperately need to come face to face with the sin that I so often neglect or don't see or don't deal with. And I so desperately need to be reminded of the compassion that God has for me because I am weak and I fail and I am imperfect and I long, I long to walk faithfully with God though it is such a struggle sometimes in our sinful flesh, amen? And if you're here today and, and you're an unbeliever, I just want to just take a minute just to speak to you. Look, I know a lot of, first of all, it's helpful to understand that, that the preaching from the, from the pulpit in a church is always meant to first and foremost hit the believer. 
we're called as pastors to build up the believers, the followers of Christ, to help them mature. And so if you're sitting here saying, like, this sounds like you're just preaching to the choir. I am. <laughs> but, but I want to say that, that, that though that's the primary focus, we, we think about you, we care for you, and we're so thankful that you're here. And we trust that you're, you're hearing some things that maybe help you understand the Christian faith. And, and I want you to know that the, one of the primary purposes of God's word is so that you would come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that you would see all of the things that I just described that the Word of God reveals about your own heart so that you could be met by the grace of God even today. So that you could rejoice like those who were baptized today in the new life that God wants to give you through Christ. And So I would ask you to consider this morning, even as you're hearing maybe the gospel for the first time or you're really considering it for the first time, would you hear it first of all from a heart of compassion and love from people who want you to know the God of all love and compassion. But can you hear it also as the truth that God has given us? There is no other way to Him. You can't be good enough, as it was shared this morning. You can't give enough. You can't attend church enough. You can't uh, uh, read your Bible enough. You can't pray enough. God says you can never be enough, not on your own. God in his grace says, I have come for you because you could not come for me. And God says, look, you need to understand how serious sin is. Sin has alienated you from me. Sin has caused a chasm so great you could never get across it. But the good news is that there's no chasm so great that God cannot leap across. And he laid down the life of his son so that he could walk into our lives. He shed the blood of his own son to pay for our sin. He raised him back to life so that he could raise us to life. That all those who look and have faith in Jesus Christ can live in him. God wants you to come to a confrontation today with your own heart before him. Because he wants you to come face to face with him. God calls us to this relationship and he grows us underneath the ministry of the word. And so part of this for the Christian, you need to be asking, well, this should help determine what kind of preaching I should be looking for and I should be placing myself under I should be looking for preaching that is preaching with conviction, that is aiming at correction, that forces a confrontation in my own heart, but it is coming from a heart of compassion. Since the tone and approach, by the way, can often be abused, and I think that's fair to say, we all know that there are Christians who love to stand in the corner with bullhorns and simply yell at people and tell them they're going to hell, and, and that is one of the most ungracious approaches, I think, to evangelism. God wants to make sure that our approach is very tempered and very carefully done. He cares not just what we say, he cares how we say it. And so notice that he tags on here what is so vital for our communication of the truth of God's word. He says this at the end of verse 2, with complete patience and teaching. With all patience and teaching. And this is so necessary because people don't come along at the pace we want them to. People don't always hear what we're trying to say, and they often don't like what we have to say, and so there is required a great degree of patience if we are going to wrestle with the hearts of sinners, and there is required an instructional piece where we come alongside them in patience, and we walk through the questions that they're asking. We take them to the Word of God. We take seriously the objections that they have. We wrestle with them fairly and faithfully. You see, Christian, hear this. The purpose of our proclamation is not to be right, but to help people get right. That means that we are willing to patiently serve and help those in sin, willing to teach them and instruct lovingly towards obedience to the truth. And as I said, this is not always going to go well. Not everybody responds well to the truth in any regard, but specifically to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So regardless of your intentions or approach, you just need to know this. Sometimes people are going to just object. They're going to flat out refuse to believe what you believe, and that's okay. You can't force anybody to believe what you believe, but here's the problem with that. Oftentimes that can lead to a place of discouragement and and faint-heartedness in our own walk with God, and we can struggle to be consistent Christians because we're so discouraged by what we're seeing in the response to the gospel and and the adversity we're facing, and that's where Timothy is right now, potentially discouraged by what's happening. And so our third statement to live by is so vital. It's this, I am willing to contend with resistance to the truth. 
I'm willing to contend with resistance to the truth. Here's how Paul frames this for Timothy and for us. He says in verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. By the way, this is not only true of of unbelievers, people who are just flat out reject the gospel. This is true principally of even professing Christians. There are professing Christians, and every one of us is in this category, who have a propensity to pursue error rather than truth. We can be easily led astray. Our heart's desires can begin to consume us to the point where we actually choose willingly to walk away from the truth and choose willingly to embrace error because it tastes sweeter to us in the moment. Paul, what he is saying is that though this is a present uh, potential reality, and likely it is a present reality, there is, if you, if you just notice the language for the time is coming, Paul is pointing towards a future day when the difficulties would actually blossom and exponential opposition to the gospel and God's word would be found in the church of Jesus Christ. The opposition to God's word is really described by Paul in three ways. He, he kind of breaks it down into three components here. They're very kind of clear cut. Let's look at them just really briefly together. He says this first, that there will be people who will not endure sound teaching or sound doctrine. They just won't endure it anymore. It becomes unpalatable to them. It becomes bitter in their mouth. It's like the grating of teeth or nails on a chalkboard. It makes their spine tingle. The content and demands of the gospel will become unsavory to them. I mentioned before, I have sat with people who have professed faith in Christ, who have walked with Christ, and, I, and, and will sit as they're wrestling through issues. And, and sadly, I'd like to say this is really uncommon, but sadly, this is more common than, than maybe you realize, maybe you've been here where people will be wrestling through particular issues and, and they'll be struggling and I'll, I'll, we'll open up God's word and I'll point some things out and say, look, this is, this is what the Bible says. And, and they'll say, yeah, I see that. I just don't care. You're like, what? Like, this is what God says. How can you not care? I just don't care. You know what? I, I, I'm just really, really not caring about what God wants for me because you know what? My own happiness is what matters most. Or or that's not the way I really want to live my life. Or I have other goals and objectives for my life, and they just don't fit with Scripture. And so I'm going to do what's right for me. And this is so often characteristic of a heart that is so distant from God. And so secondly, here's what happens to a person like that who will not endure sound teaching. Notice this, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You see, what happens is this, listen, the passions are waging war within us. As a believer, right, Paul, Paul gives this breakdown in, in Romans chapter 7, and he does it in Galatians as well. There are passions, Peter talks about this, passions wage war. There's the Spirit of God within us who produces passions for holiness, passions for righteousness, passions for the glory of God, passions to do what honors Him. And then there's the flesh, that sinful part of us that still remains here and now that one day will be fully and ultimately eradicated. It still craves sin. It still craves sinful satisfaction. And there are passions that we long for that are antithetical to to faithful Christian living. And as this battle rages, eventually the people who, who move away from sound teaching, they begin to feed the passions of the flesh, and that desire begins to grow. Well, this desire begins to diminish. This is why, as we saw last week, it's so important to be regularly getting a healthy intake of God's word and having it impact your heart, because the less you do that, the, the more you will turn away from the truth. Your desire decreases, your desire for sin and selfishness increases, and all of a sudden, you find yourself, listen, accumulating Accumulating, stacking up, piling up teachers that suit your own passions. Just one on top of another. I just, you can just envision you know, a book after book after book after book of teacher who is simply saying what I want to hear. You know, we have a tendency to do this. And just in case you're like, yeah, I know people like that. You know, we all have a tendency to do this. We all have a tendency 
as we drift away from truth and we, we, we fight for our own way, we all have a tendency to start moving towards people who tell us not what we need to hear, but what we want to hear. This is what we do in our sinful flesh, right? We know maybe we're in sin, we, we, you know, so we're like, I'm not gonna go, I'm not gonna go talk to them because they're gonna tell me what I, what I don't wanna hear. I know who I'm gonna go talk to. I'm gonna, these guys, they're gonna, they're gonna tell me what I, what I want to hear. They're gonna feed this. And we don't say that outrightly, but that's exactly what we tend to do. And I get it, right? There's a part of us that doesn't love to, like to be confronted, that doesn't like to be told, no, you're wrong, that doesn't like to be pushed back on we would love it if everybody in the world was our greatest fan, wouldn't we? And in this sense, what we see is that there are people who will stack up teachers, gurus, religious practitioners, self-help advocates who tell them what they want to hear, who feed their fleshly passions. And I just want to encourage you to beware. And I need to hear this too. Look, if you refuse to hear from those who disagree, you will willingly walk into disaster. If you refuse to let people push back, if you refuse to let people tell you you're wrong, you will willingly walk into disaster. And this is the third part of what Paul draws out in verse 4. He says that people will turn away from truth. With their itching ears, they'll turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. They give up what is not true for what is, or excuse me, what is true for what is false. But that word myth has a certain ring to it, doesn't it? It has a sort of sadness to it in my mind. When people are believing myths, it's almost like they've just been given over to fantasy world. Today, preachers fill sports arenas by telling people what they want to hear about their money or about politics, by entertaining them and by proclaiming bizarre doctrines that appeal to their curiosity. People sell millions of dollars worth of books on really anti-gospel, anti-truth, uh, under the, the name or framework of Christianity. You say, why does this work so well? Like, why, why, do people do, why, do, why do people do this? Why do we have a tendency to do this? Well, that's, it's really simple because truth is like broccoli, right? It's really good for you, but it doesn't taste as good as cake. It just doesn't. And if you think it does, you're crazy, right? It, it is easier, believe me, it would be easier to give my kids cake all day. All day, every meal, I would hear way less whining. I would hear way less, Dad, I don't want to eat this. Dad, I don't like that. Dad, I'm not hungry. It would be easier because they would be a lot happier, at least on the surface level and at least temporarily in the moment. It would be easier because they probably like me a whole lot more, right? Like, my dad gives me cake for breakfast. Tell me that's not going to go over well at school. Be the coolest dad around. It's easier. But that would kill them, wouldn't it? Ultimately, it would end up killing them. It would hurt them. It would harm them. They need broccoli. The truth may be harder to swallow, but it is always better to believe. And here's a principle that I, I want to encourage you to embrace. It'll be on the screen behind me. Listen, we are not called to scratch itching ears, but to pierce callous hearts. And there is such a temptation to want to scratch the itch, to give them what they want to hear, what they most desire in the moment. The problem is, is that people are so fickle, and they change like the seasons. Their passions and desires change like the seasons. But if this is going to be reality, look, if we're going to take God's word and we're going to help people walk in truth and not myth, we need first, listen, you need to first understand this. We need our own hearts pierced regularly by God's word. We need to contend with the resistance to the truth in our own life first. And, and here's how we can do that. Let me just reverse these three things that Paul has given in the negative, and let me just say it like this to your heart and to mine. First, if you want to contend, resist, excuse me, contend with the resistance to truth in your own life, here's what you need to do. Love sound teaching. Love sound teaching. I mean, don't get enough of it. Gobble it up as if you love broccoli. 
accumulate teachers who care most about God's passions and God's heart. Get around people who are going to teach you what it looks like to love God most of all and to, to be passionate about the things God is passionate about, not what they're personally passionate about first and foremost. And then lastly, run toward truth. Run towards it with all of your strength, with all of your might, with all of your vigor. Get there quick, get there fast, get there early, get there often. Be in the truth. And the more you feel like running away from the truth, the faster you need to run towards truth. Do this with your own personal internal resistance and you'll be ready and willing to do it with the external resistance that you are sure to face when you are consistently walking with Christ. Finally, final statement to help us live a consistent Christian life, I am primarily focused on my faithfulness to the task. I am primarily focused on my faithfulness to the task. Paul, in verse 5, really sums up this entire not just this entire section, these previous four verses, but I think he really sums up this entire book. He says, as for you, Timothy, always, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He shifts the gears and he gets really personal and he says, Timothy, this is your primary task. If you want to make sure that you faithfully follow me as a minister of the gospel and as a follower of Jesus Christ, and here is your primary task, I can boil it down into these concepts. The first one is this, be sober-minded. That means this, to stay alert. Keep your head screwed on right. Don't get rattled. Don't get distracted. Don't get inebriated with false teaching and false teachers and Keep a clear head by keeping it focused on the truth. This is the only present tense verb, and that just means this. Paul is driving this verb home as if it is, in one sense, of primary importance. Timothy, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be always on guard. You need to be so vigilant. It is so easy, isn't it, to get off track in the Christian life? It is so easy, and if we are not vigilant, we will surely get off track in certain regards. There is continual action required. Don't let your guard down. I mean, you need to think about it like this. You know, Peter says that, that Satan, our great adversary, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he shall devour. Let me just ask you a, a very basic question. When does a lion typically attack? When you are least expecting it. When you're not prepared. When you're not vigilant. And so we are called to be like a soldier ready for an enemy assault at all times. The second thing he tells Timothy, is to endure hardship. And again, this really has been a common thread and theme throughout this entire book. And, and if you're watchful, you'll identify and expose and refute the false teachings that, that come across uh, your table. This is sure to invite hardship and suffering. It is sure to invite persecution. You are sure to suffer through your reputation and maybe through the loss of much more than that. And so the call to endure hardship is a call to do this without flinching. With unflinching confidence and composure, with trust in the Lord, knowing that he is sovereign over every hardship you encounter, and if it is for him and his glory, you can be sure it is for your good. And then he says what, what is always convicting to me. I don't know, every time I read this, and I hope it's convicting to you, he says this to a pastor. He says, do the work of an evangelist. You know, we would love it, wouldn't we, if, if we could just say, oh, I'm not really gifted in evangelism. Somebody else is more gifted than that. I don't really need to focus on that. This here refutes that and rebukes that kind of thinking in us. Right away, it confronts us with the reality that every single one of us, if you have been entrusted with the gospel, you are called to be an evangelist. Now, some of you may be really good at it and really gifted at it. Others of you, of you are going to have to do a lot more work at that, but I'm telling you right now, every one of us is called to fulfill this. Because there are so many people, you say, why, why, why do we all need to do this? Because there are so many people who need to hear the gospel. There are so many people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And who are walking straight towards that accountability we talked about, eternal wrath and eternal judgment apart from Jesus Christ. They desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is hope for them. And I can just tell you this, that it, it, it's work. It doesn't come naturally. That's what this reminds me of. 
You have to do the work of an evangelist. It requires intentionality and effort. It requires you setting aside time and being vigilant to go after the people that God has put across your path. You have to not only take advantage of opportunities, you have to be willing to create opportunities. And lastly and finally, he simply says these three words, which I think pack so much punch. Timothy, church, Fulfill your ministry. Stay focused and stay faithful to the task. Do what God has called you to do. Do what he's equipped you to do. Do it right. Do it well. Do it for his glory. You see, in one sense, Paul ends this stirring charge with a call for consistency. Just keep doing these things, Timothy, over and over and over again, and this is the recipe for a a consistent Christian life. Let this characterize your ministry. Let this characterize your life. What a fitting charge for all of us this morning. Every day we live, we can gather some encouragement from these words, especially this final verse. You know, when life is good, listen, be sober-minded, endure hardships, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Every day when you get up and life is hard, listen, do the same thing over and over. Just repeat it to yourself. Just repeat these words back to yourself every single morning. Always be sober-minded, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry Whether you've failed or fallen, whether storms are beating against you, whether you feel like running away. You know, as the years fly by and quickly become decades, you and I will change. But God's call to us will not. Jesus, our judge, our savior, and our king will always be present with his charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and instruction. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but with itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fill your ministry. Father, we pray that this would characterize us. Father, we want to be consistent Christians. God, not riding the waves of our own sinful living, our own emotional instability, our own sinful passions and desires. Lord, we we long to be increasingly more consistent, to have our life framed by the statements of your word, to be the kind of men and women you call us to be. God, we're reminded that you are a consistent God, that you never change. Lord, we long, Lord, as we have read even this morning, we've sung about it this morning, we long for your appearing and your kingdom. We long to behold our God to worship the one who will reign forever. God, we know we are accountable to you, but Lord, we trust that as we live consistently, we will be like the servants who stand before you and who give an account and you declare the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Come and enjoy the kingdom that I have established and that you get to partake in. Come and enjoy me. Come and enjoy me, the, the center of all joy, of peace and satisfaction. Come and gaze upon my beauty. Come and behold me. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more distractions, no more inconsistency, no more failures, no more brokenness, no more hurt, no more pain. Behold me and live forever. Lord, we long for that day. So give us a hunger and thirst here and now for more of you, knowing that when we get to see you face to face, we will not be disappointed. God, take us. We are yours. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.